Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. Unfortunately, Abby can't join me today. She's busy. Her kid is growing up. It's very exciting. But she had to take a little break this month. But if shit really goes off between now and inauguration, then she'll definitely be back with me for a little update of some kind. We might even add some kind of addendum to our next podcast. But we already have a podcast in the can, ready to go after this one. An interview with Dr. Susan Block, a longtime sex counselor, sex therapist, who has a lot of interesting things to say about the Trump era. We have a really interesting discussion about obscenity laws in the United States, how sex workers have been stifled online and been censored online ever since the beginning of the internet. It's not really a new thing that social media networks are censoring people because sex workers have experienced it ever since they've been around. But in general, uh, the discussion is interesting. It's a little different than what we've done on Media Roots before. And I think I make a pretty good case for why this should be a left issue. But more importantly, sort of a contrast between how we have this sort of oversexed, overstimulated culture here in the United States and in the West with all the wide availability to pornography. But running simultaneously with that, we have sort of a chilling effect in the air with obscenity laws, with websites that are afraid to host certain content, and new laws hanging and looming over sex workers' heads that pretty much take away their ability to make money. We'll go into a lot of those details. So if you're interested in hearing that episode, that one's coming next. Before we get into our interview with Gumby for Christ, who is uh, one of the best researchers out there, I think, who really only does work on Twitter in terms of his public stuff. He, he chooses to remain anonymous in this podcast. He has some law expertise, some legal expertise, and we're going to break down a lot of what happened on not just on January 6th, but how we got there and sort of what it means going forward. We also examine QAnon from the angle of, is it some kind of PSYOP? Who are the people, who are these players that are involved? Is part of this a show? To skip forward to my discussion and interview with Gumby for Christ, scroll to 24 minutes and 30 seconds. But since I recorded that interview with Gumby for Christ a few days ago, uh, we didn't get a chance to catch up on a lot of the recent developments that have happened. So I'm just going to sort of go quickly through things that have happened recently and give some updated takes because some of my opinions have changed slightly. There's some new information that paints things in a slightly different light. But there's also been a lot of new information that has just come out about what's going on with Trump, what's going on with the inauguration, what's going on with all these domestic terror warnings that I wanted to go through. This is going to be partly my analysis of what's been happening with Trump exiting the White House. I say that a little bit hesitantly because how it appears to me is that Trump used already one of the craziest plays he could have used, which was riling up essentially the angry Q base. Because as I've said, Stop the Steal as a movement, Trump seemed intent on steering that movement into an alternate reality lane to the point where they became merged somehow with the QAnon movement, as well as Trump heavily peddling QAnon 
stuff, material, characters from the movement, influencers in the past month or two. So when I saw Trump steering in that direction, of course, my initial thought was, this is bad news. This is not going to end well. But now that Trump has been impeached again, now that there are 16,000 troops, which they're actually going to be 20,000 troops in D.C. for the inauguration to prevent some kind of quote-unquote domestic terrorist attack, things seem awfully tense. And just because Trump has been impeached in the House doesn't really mean jack shit because if the people who are sort of in government right now, House members, senators, even Trump's own advisors, if they're not sure about Trump, the only real solution is the 25th Amendment. He is unfit for office. Now, Pence has already said he's not going to go in that direction, but I think it's undeniable at this point that Trump put Pence in the crosshairs of an angry mob that could have potentially killed him. And just to give you a little bit more insight into that, apparently Pence was only seconds away from protesters who were actually looking for him, who were intent to potentially harm him. So I think that really says a lot about what where Trump is willing to go. I don't know if anybody really expected Trump If you would have asked me a month ago if Trump would have put Mike Pence in physical danger as some kind of wild play to remain in the White House, I would have been like, wait, how? That sounds wild. How is he doing that? I don't believe you. Can you explain to me what he's going to do? Because that's unbelievable. Um, But Trump did exactly that. So that being said, 20,000 troops that are going to be in D.C., things are feeling awfully weird. And Trump still has control He is the commander-in-chief. He still has some control over the military. Now, I've been discussing this with a lot of people recently, and they say there's no way that the military would go along with some kind of illegal order by Trump or even some kind of wink and a nod. Well, I have a lot more to say about that. And if you want to hear me talk about that, scroll to after the interview to one hour and 56 minutes. First, I'll start with a very curious video that shows probably the most famous face of this capital siege, the QAnon shaman seemingly being just escorted by a police officer onto the house floor, into the chamber. The cop's not raising his voice. The cop is not touching him. And he sees a guy sitting on the ground, and the QAnon shaman sort of walks past him, and the guy on the ground looks injured. The guy on the ground looks like more of a typical MAGA guy, and the cop says, Do you need medical attention? And the guy says, no, I'm okay. I I got shot, though. I got shot with like a rubber bullet or something. And as a QAnon shaman just sort of meandering around, and there's this guy laying on the floor. There's a guy now currently at the podium. I don't know who he is. Hey! Fucking hey, man. Glad to see you guys. You guys are fucking patriots. Look at this guy. He's got covered in blood. God bless you. You good, sir? Do you need medical attention? I'm good, thank you. You all right? I got shot in the face. Where are they? I got shot in the face with some kind of plastic bullet. Any chance I could get you guys yeah. to leave the Senate wing? We will. I've been making sure they ain't disrespecting the place. Okay, just want to let you guys know this is like the <coughs> sacredest place. I know. The cop just says to the three of them who are currently in the Senate chambers, he says, This is like the sacredest place. So, Another interesting reveal of how the cops were just 
either completely afraid to do anything or didn't do anything at all like how they would treat normal protesters. Pretty shocking stuff. A video came out of Baked Alaska, the ex-BuzzFeed reporter, believe it or not, who turned into some kind of grifter, quasi-white nationalist, sort of from the Milo Yiannopoulos era of the alt-right. He was streaming himself in Nancy Pelosi's office with some other groiper guy. I don't know if it was Nick Fuentes specifically, but it was some other of those dumb motherfuckers who just bizarrely are still idolizing Trump, even though he's like a total Israel shill. It doesn't even make sense. Like the groiper movement itself just doesn't even make sense. It's just a bizarre contradiction. But they were streaming themselves in Nancy Pelosi's office and then using her telephone. Let's call Trump yet! (laughs) Dude! Dude, let's tell Trump what's up. Trump would be very upset. And he'd be like, no, just say we love him. We love you, bro. No, he'll be happy. What do you mean? We're fighting for Trump. Hey, hold up. I can't get an outside line. I can call the U.S. Senate, apparently. Okay. Um, Hello. Hello, U.S. Senate. Yes, we have a fraudulent election, I would like to report. Yeah, we need to get our boy Donald J. Trump into office. Yeah, Yeah, can we do that real quick? Oh, yeah? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Let's go. And uh, it's yoga season? Uh, yoga season? Let's go. Okay. America first is inevitable. Let's go. Fuck globalists. Let's go. Pretty wild shit. Again, we don't know exactly how they got into Nancy Pelosi's office or how they found it. There's talk right now circulating about potential agitators that were sent in to the protest. There's videos taken by people, specifically a guy who goes by the name Jaden X, um, that show a man in a furry hat. Seems like a crazy guy. A lot of people are just calling him the crazy guy in the hat, who's yelling and screaming from behind the cop line. And he sort of runs into the crowd and starts agitating things and starts pushing people around. It's not clear where he comes from, but the FBI did actually put out an alert asking for people to identify him and turn him in after the fact. But a lot of people are passing around these videos claiming that this guy in the furry hat, who was some kind of potential agitator, is the reason why this went off into some kind of violent event. Or that because he might be an agitator, that means that this whole thing was some kind of false flag. Now, I have a lot more to say about that, and let me just also comment on the supposed BLM Antifa guy, Jaden X, Uh, who appeared on CNN and was one of the ones taking a bunch of this footage. Well, it turns out that he's not BLM or Antifa. He said he was part of some BLM group on CNN. He was inside the Capitol building filming these people. He filmed Ashley Babbitt's murder, essentially by police, after she tried to dive through the window. But what this guy actually is, it's kind of a little bit sketchy and curious. He does seem... Like he maybe was some kind of guy misrepresenting who he was. Uh, it's hard to say he's specifically an infiltrator, but if he if he is an infiltrator of some kind, and this guy in the furry hat was, what kind of infiltrator and for who? What side of this equation would he have been an infiltrator for? So there are actual PNAC-associated neocons right now trying to use this Jaden X uh, video thing and the fact that he was there filming as sort of a slam dunk case that there was an Antifa infiltration and that's what caused the violence. But the videos he filmed don't show anything other than just him sort of acting sketchy. And just because 
he's filming from behind a police line at times doesn't necessarily make him. That's not proof he's an infiltrator. Sometimes police don't treat journalists or people filming like criminals. So my whole take on this infiltrator angle is it almost doesn't change the equation that much, even if there were infiltrators there. Because with the amount of real people uh, who also were real believers, who really believed in Trump and stopped the steal, and they believe they can somehow stop the steal by going in there, it almost doesn't, you don't need infiltrators really. Now, if the argument is the infiltrators are the ones who broke down the windows at first and the doors and got and gained entry, now that's a specific argument that these people are not making. A lot of the people who are trying to absolve, absolve Trump, a lot of the sort of conspiracizers who do that, um, who are mostly just in the QAnon zone anyways, but including actual neocons like a J. Michael Waller, who works at the Frank Gaffney think tank, the Center for Security Policy, he's saying that this was an Antifa job. Rudy Giuliani is saying it's an Antifa job. But I think that the infiltrator argument, even if people are looking at this sort of who are not pro-Trump and are like, why, why are these sketchy people there? They look like they might be infiltrators. That narrative is still a potentially useful tool for Trump's side. Like, let's say, who put infiltrators in, if you believe that? Well, are you saying it's Antifa? Are you saying it's the Democrats trying to take Trump down? Why wouldn't it also be Trump's side putting actual infiltrators into the mix? Another example of who benefits this. It could be both Trump's enemies and his own side that could benefit from something like that because Trump could then turn around and say it was Antifa or his supporters could then turn around and say it was Antifa if someone sent in some kind of self-identified Antifa guy into the mix. Now, I don't know if this is what the purpose of this guy, Jaden X, is. I have no idea. I just know that his background is bizarre. And he's not BLM, like he says. He has a history of posting very militant things that almost seem kind of QAnon-y on his social media posting. So I don't know. But at this point, I'm willing to really believe anything. I mean, this guy, there's really nothing about this guy that sticks out to me as someone who would have been hired by the feds or something. He just seems like he just could be a nutty weirdo who wanted attention. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of people jumping into the fray, including neocons, which you need to be really careful about. There are also neocons from the Hudson Institute and the Claremont Institute who've been pumping people with this idea that the Dems are going to try to do a color revolution to oust Trump. Well, Trump lost the election. So even if you buy into some of the election fraud stuff, that's been out there, they weren't able to get any traction in any of the courts. So it didn't work. His attempt to do whatever didn't work. So these weird, sketchy neocons have been trying to prime people with this idea, playing into the conspiracy rhetoric, conspiracy world rhetoric about color revolutions coming for Trump before the election even happened. So now that the election's happened, these same neocons are now jumping in and saying that this was an Antifa, somehow agitated event, that this was some kind of false flag. It was conducted by these agitators. Well, it's funny because even some of those people now, I just saw Scott Adams saying that he thinks QAnon might either be allowed to operate or that it's maybe even some kind of psyop. I mean, uh, I have an article that Whitney Webb quoted me in from around 2018 talking about this. So, when I said PSYOP, I don't necessarily mean this is done by an intel agency itself. There's an article now floating around saying that CrowdStrike and the FBI are behind QAnon because CrowdStrike is behind the DNC hack. I don't believe either of those theories. 
a nutshell version of my theory, I think that it's a combination of private intel agencies, possibly even including Blackwater, which now engages in information warfare, directed by people like Eric Prince. Uh, Michael Flynn is most likely involved in whatever this is. Operationally speaking, in terms of deploying the postings themselves, which if you really zoom out from all this, the QAnon postings themselves are only just one small part of this. Ron Watkins and Jim Watkins were in control of those postings for a time, but other people were involved in creating the movement itself. And that movement was designed via a psychological operation, including characters like Robert David Steele, former intelligence, people like Steve Pachenik, former State Department. But in the end, the point I'm trying to make about agitators is that even if there were a small little handful of agitators there and you want to engage in the dialogue about this being some kind of psychological operation to some extent, well, look only to the QAnon movement itself. It's a now a self-driving engine. Part of what Robert David Steele describes in his crowdsourced intelligence information war apparatus to fight the deep state, he, he says, is to eventually make it a self-driving engine. And that's what QAnon has become because the poster has not posted since December 8th. So my point about agitators is, is it doesn't even matter really if there were just a handful of agitators there or not because most of these people were real, legitimate people who had been either riled up by QAnon or Stop the Steal or a combination of both. And the agitators were these people who went inside the conspiracy movement on behalf of some kind of larger political psychological operation to run a narrative in conspiracy movement. Those are the real agitators were. And they agitated enough real people up with the help of Trump, with the help of people like Michael Flynn, with the help of people like Eric Prince. We know these breadcrumbs exist. It's just... I don't know how it all actually fits together and how structured it actually is. But it was Trump who knowingly and willingly participated in whatever this was, whether it's a PSYOP or not. And he knew that he was sending a violent mob to the Capitol building based on this hysteria, based on this hysterical cult that had been amped up known as QAnon. Other U.S. military figures, retired and current, who are being outed as either organizers or, or participants in the event. Um, and a retired Navy SEAL named Adam Newbold, who's 45, from Lisbon, Ohio. He said he was proud of the assault on the U.S. Capitol building, and he actually was part of the siege that broke into the building. And he said, quote, that he wanted lawmakers to be left shaking in their shoes, Adam Newbold, this Navy SEAL, is currently under FBI investigation. And when ABC News contacted him after he was identified, he said, I would like to express to you just a cry for clemency as you understand that my life now has been absolutely turned upside down. I am not a terrorist. I am not a traitor. Now, a lot of people have been making a big deal about this other example of a active duty military officer and actually a PSYOPs officer. Um, from The Guardian, the headline is, Army Investigates PSYOPs Officer for Role in Washington on Day of Capitol Riot. 
Captain Emily Rainey led North Carolina group to Trump rally. She was a psychological operations officer, and she said that she did it in the capacity of being a private citizen. Now, the Guardian says, quote, the Army is investigating a psychological operations officer who led a group of people from North Carolina to the rally in Washington that led up to the deadly riot in the U.S. Capitol by supporters of Donald Trump. Commanders at Fort Bragg are reviewing Captain Emily Rainey's involvement in last week's events in the nation's capital, but she said she acted within military regulations and that no one in her group broke the law. Rainey said, I was a private citizen and doing everything right and within my rights. Rainey, 30, is assigned to the 4th Psychological Operations Group at Fort Bragg, according to Major Daniel Lessard, spokesperson for the 1st Special Forces Command known as PSYOPs, the group uses information and misinformation to shape the emotions, decision-making, and actions of American adversaries. Rainey made headlines in May after she posted a video online of her pulling down caution tape at a playground that was closed under North Carolina's COVID-19 restrictions. The police told a local news channel that they had let her off with warnings twice before after she tore down the tape, closing off the playground. There's also been some new details emerging of potential dark money and massive Bitcoin drives for the Stop the Steal rally itself to fly some of these people out there. Apparently, Clarence Thomas's wife was behind funding some of these people. Apparently, Rutgers University, Charlie Kirk, was responsible for busing a bunch of people out. I heard Alex Jones on a broadcast actually say that at the last minute, he got a $500,000 donation from a single donor to organize people to go to stop the steal. His ex his ex InfoWars employee, Rambo Joe Biggs, was actually photographed inside the Capitol building after they'd broken in. Now, what's interesting is Alex Jones brings up this $500 donation because he's sort of saying that he believes he was set up <laughs> and that he believes that it was a setup to make Trump supporters look bad. But he still acknowledges that he got some last-minute $500,000 donation, although, of course, he doesn't disclose who that was. So Alex Jones always likes to play that game where he is like, I've been set up, someone's setting me up, and then he doesn't say the name of the person who he's talking about might have been setting him up. It's like, well, if you were set up and you're not saying the name of the person, then kind of seems like you're part of the setup. <laughs> now, since January 6th happened, just in unrelated news, I guess, you know, that's all kind of mostly about the Capitol building itself and what happened inside of it. But moving on to some other things that have happened since, Trump was impeached a second time, as I said. This time, 10 Republicans voted for impeachment in the House. And just really quickly going through them, the only name that I even really recognize on this list of Republicans is Liz Cheney. Other Republicans who voted for impeachment, and you're probably not going to recognize any of these names, Representative Tom Rice, Dan Newhouse, Adam Kinzinger, Anthony Gonzalez, Fred Upton, Jamie Herrera, Butler, Peter Meijer, John Katko, and David Valadio. Never heard of any of those guys. So I don't know who organized that, but it seemed that all it really took was just the events of January 6th. Now Trump is the first president to historically be impeached twice. But again, this is probably not going to ultimately matter because the Senate 
trial is not even going to happen until after inauguration. The Senate has to vote a majority of two-thirds in favor of impeachment for it to go through. So in my mind, the 25th Amendment was really the only logical step. And anything short of that, I don't know what other countermeasures you have. And just some other sort of weird signs of things happening is that Alex Jones, there's a viral clip of him going around, apparently disavowing QAnon. He's interviewing the QAnon shaman, I guess, before the QAnon shaman went to jail, where he's demanding they serve him organic food. Q tells us stuff in all of its lies, is what I'm saying. You keep, you keep interrupting me. Because dude. you're lying. You. Because you're full of shit. That's why. Because every god thing, goddamn thing out of you people's mouths doesn't come true. And it's always, oh, there's energy. And oh, now we're done with Trump. You said he was the Messiah. You said he was invincible. You said it was all over. They were all going to get mode. Now, oh, he's part of a larger thing of Q. I will not suffer your Q people after this. I knew what you were day one. And I know what you are now. And I'm sick of it. I'm sick of all these witches and warlocks and pumpkin popsums and everything. <laughs> Oh, God. Sorry. Bye-bye, Q. I can't talk to you anymore. Jesus Christ. Lord, help me. Oh. But that video is disingenuous. First of all, a lot of people are mislabeling it as Alex Jones has always hated Q. He was never on board with Q. That's not true. Alex Jones was a fundamental, extremely important aspect to, from for QAnon going viral in the first place. He sort of sanctioned it made Q a made man, so to speak, in the conspiracy hierarchy. Alex Jones is a fundamental cog in whatever operation this is. So for anybody to say he di he's always disavowed QAnon, no, it's not true. He was sort of hot and cold on QAnon after a while, but at first he was 100% dedicated to it. But even after Alex Jones disavows QAnon on his show recently, while he's interviewing the QAnon shaman, and he makes a little performance out of it. Just a couple days later, he then interviews again someone that I think is a Q suspect, a man named Steve Pachenik, who tells him that this is all part of it. This is all part of a plan. It was a false flag. Trump is getting into the White House. The inauguration is not really going to happen. They're going to do military control. All right, Dr. Steve Pachenik is our guest. I'm Alex Jones, your host. And Doc, quantify this for me. Your, your view, your perspective on this. How is it a successful military coup uh, against the deep state who he knows there and is corrupt, uh, the globalist arm of the deep state, I guess, if Biden gets in in seven days? Or are you saying Trump's going to get in? There's about to be mass arrests. We don't have a lot of time here, like 150 hours. What, what are you saying is about to happen? Alex, quiet down a bit. You've never been in a military coup. You do not understand what that means. You do not understand how quickly we work and how long we've been preparing for this. I'm about to say that Biden is not going to be the president of the United States. What I'm going to be saying is that there have been massive arrests. And what I'm saying, in effect, is that we are in martial law and we have a military coup, which simply means that there is going to be a, a large number of people who are going to be arrested, detained and will be tried by military tribunal. The reason it's military is because we no longer trust our CIA. We no longer trust our politicians. We do not trust our governors. We do not trust the senior officials who are in Congress or in the Senate. It's as simple as that. 
I said it to you years ago. I told you exactly who was going to leave. They left. I wrote the book 27 years ago about a military coup happening in the United States state of emergency. It's as simple as that, Alex. But Alex Jones is there just entertaining this whole conspiracy theory about how Trump has still secretly won the election and is going to stay in office. And it's virtually identical to Q. And Alex Jones is letting Steve Pachenik do this without pushing back on him. So it doesn't really matter that Alex Jones has disavowed Q. He's still allowing the totally the Q narrative to play on his show. If you're interested in hearing more about Steve Pachenik and why I think that he might have been involved in QAnon, or at least the QAnon narrative was stolen from him. He was the originator of the idea. You can go back and listen to my QAnon two-part episode from Media Roots Radio that was released over the summer. But the point is, it doesn't matter that Alex Jones has disavowed QAnon or pretends to have disavowed QAnon. His 19-year-long most frequent guest that seems to have been feeding Alex Jones most of his primary narratives is essentially putting out the same narrative. And in fact, this guy is talking in the first person as if somehow he's directly involved in this group of insider patriots. But now we're going to move on to an interview that I did that I promised you guys. An interview and discussion about the Capitol building incident and many other things with Gumby for Christ. Gumby for Christ is personally my favorite follow on the absolute hell site known as twitter.com. And we have a lot of overlapping interests in the same, I guess you would call deep politics subjects like the 2001 anthrax attacks, the U S government's history of bio warfare things that some people might call real U.S. government conspiracies instead of mere conspiracy theories. Gumby for Christ is one of the most valuable deep politics treasure hunters of the moment. He's constantly pulling out obscure and largely unknown facts about the U.S. government and military operations that have relevance to today. And I'm always learning new things from following him. And while he has chosen to remain anonymous under his handle, Gumby for Christ. I start by asking him why he chose this name. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for coming on. I'm excited to have you. I take it you aren't a Zoomer, uh, Gumby, unless Gumby, the character, has made some kind of comeback on TikTok. So without revealing too much about your personal background, because you have chosen to remain anonymous on this podcast, um, are you roughly maybe from my generation? Is that is that too personal? No, that's not too personal. I think I'm maybe a bit younger than you, but not by too much. Okay. Um, I yeah, I the name. There's not a really a great story behind the name. It um, I sort of originally started the account, and if you go back to my very earliest tweets, you may see this as basically. Um, <laughs> kind of a troll account and I would just sort of troll I, I don't know even like kind of establishment democrats or liberals or something um which was more my interest in like 2015 or whenever I started it 
So it quickly moved on from that, but um, it was basically, I was trying to pick a name that was really stupid <laughs> so that if anybody ever replied to me seriously, they would instantly kind of seem a little foolish because the name was so uh, nice. transparently dumb. <laughs> so, and now I've been uh, kind of saddled with it. There's nothing Christian. I'm not Christian. The account is not Christian. I don't have, I mean, I like Gumby and I, I've watched certainly some of the early or cloaky claymation Gumby episodes, but I don't really have any strong <laughs> like affinity for Gumby. So it didn't really come out of that either. Okay. Yeah. No, you, you, you hit all my check boxes. Cause I was, I was going to ask you all, all these Gumby questions. <laughs> um, it's going to ask you what your fascination with Gumby is. Um, you know, how much Gumby you used to watch. Um, but no, that makes sense. And you're not a Christian, which thank you for clearing that up. Um, <laughs> and I was also going to ask why not, why don't you pick a name like Blockheads for Satan or something like that? But it sounds like it was just sort of a side note to your your persona. Um, but like, was there any, I mean, just I guess the only other question about Gumby I have, is there any Christ allegory that exists in the Gumby universe or like there is with RoboCop or is that just completely an adventure I don't, of you? Not that I know of, although when I got, when I picked the name, I did like Google Gumby and Jesus or Gumby and Christ. And there are like images of Gumby <laughs> being crucified out oh, wow. there. So I don't really know. They're not official, like from the cartoon or the claymation. Okay. The thing is though, Art Clokey who created Gumby was actually really Christian. And he went on and made uh Davy and Goliath, which I really never watched at all. But you know, that was an explicitly Christian yeah. claymation show. So I, I don't know if somehow in my head those two things were combined and that was where the <laughs> name came from. I, it was really probably like 20 seconds worth of thought that I put into this name. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I will say about Gumby, and I don't mean this too disparagingly, but I don't feel bad since you're not that into Gumby, but <laughs> as a kid, I that was like my main exposure to claymation. And now that now that I've seen it as an adult, I'm like, this was not this was like on the lower end of the spectrum of like quality of claymation, like compared yeah, to what's out crude. there. Like, yeah. like the fact that this was the most popular form of it's kind of like almost a little bit upsetting to me that that's like what I was. Yeah, like it's very crudely done. You can like see thumbprints <laughs> and fingerprints in Gumby a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there's actually a, an account now that I follow called Gumby Screens that just posted it posts uh, random screenshots from Gumby. Nice. And they're always like really bad. The composition is just <laughs> not good and nothing ever like you don't really watch it and anything. All that interesting seems to be happening. And like the way Gumby was designed, you can tell it was just to make it easy. Oh yeah. To animate because he doesn't really move his legs. So he just kind of like wobbles around. Is he clay? So, was Gumby even clay or was he just like a rubber figure? I, I can't even remember. He is, he is clay. Okay. Yeah. But I Pokey was, clay. I remember Pokey always seemed more like he was doing more wild stuff with the clay and Gumby was, yeah, just mostly like wobbling around. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they would turn into like goo or ball, you know, they would do stuff like that, but like. Yeah. The, the very, uh, if I understand it right, the very first Gumby short was this thing called Gumbasia, which isn't even, doesn't really have Gumby the character in it. And it's like uh, abstract, like balls and uh, claymation all kind of moving in different directions and like balls combining and stuff. So it, it's, um, it, I don't know 
why that was where he started with. I don't really know anything <laughs> all that much lore about it, to be honest. I wonder if that guy, what that guy's net worth is from Gumby. I don't, I don't know. I think he's dead, but okay. his, uh, is it the Gumby estate? estate? Yeah. There's also Gumby's pizza, which is, there's some weird thing about Gumby's pizza where it has a, the way they have the copyright, they're only allowed to operate in college towns or something. <laughs> what? There's, I don't know what it is, but I, there's one in Columbia, Missouri, at the University of Missouri. Um, and I, my understanding is they're in like a few other college towns. And it's branded like gum. I mean, it's clearly the Gumby character and Pokey and Gumby's Pizza. Yeah. We should try to get that uh, somehow hooked into Pizzagate. <laughs> oh, man. No, I, I just outed myself, didn't I? The, <laughs> oh, shit. Well, no, no. the Pizzagate people are going to come from me. <laughs> Um, well, no, because when we talk about the Volknot, that is a, that's a Pizza Gate symbol, right? No, just kidding. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so I guess let's just get right into the the Capitol building. Um, I, I don't really know what to call it. Um, I made a joke and called it QAnon Eleven because everyone is sort of already calling this some kind of terrorist attack or something like that. For you, was this like how did you feel as it unfolded? Was it even remotely a surprise? to you that this ended up happening and if there were surprises in it like which parts of it surprised you it was definitely a surprise um i was kind of not totally checked out but i was kind of aware you know i, I was sort of watching a little bit what was going on in the senate and the challenges that they were going to bring up the objections to various states uh, but i was working during the day so i wasn't paying that close of attention and then uh, my wife happened to be working from home that day, too. And once it kind of became clear that it was all going down, um, definitely it was shocking to me. I, I kind of expected that something like this would happen more around the inauguration. Um, but in retrospect, I mean, it does kind of make sense that this was the big stand that would happen because this was really the last gasp of trumping. I guess there being any possibility of quote unquote stopping the steal. Yeah. So it was, it was pretty shocking. And my understanding is like they breached the Capitol right as the Arizona objection was happening. So it was kind of like that confluence of the, you know, the kind of show that obviously was never going to work of stopping the steal in the Senate through these objections and this like show of force breaching the Capitol and, you know, running into the the building to, you know, do it by force or, or whatever the objective was. Yeah. And I mean, I think you have also been kind of following to some extent, like what QAnon has metastasized into. So I guess on that level, like, were you surprised that that energy, you know, cause like, I don't know, how did you feel about leading into this like did you did you see it similarly to that i did that like this q and on energy was like brimming over the cup like it was it had like boiled over it was it, it was just neat yeah. it couldn't it, it it was like already it was like exploding past the lid where was it going to go from there and you know even though i thought trump seemed like emotionally defeated after losing the election i still yeah, thought yeah. that he still had that potential play where he could really amp things up by by I guess activating this Q army in some way. And so that aspect of it, 
you know, seemed like it had to do something had to come out of that. And I guess I just didn't expect it to come out like this. And, you know, we yeah. have both of you and I have talked about this idea of the strategy of tension. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I totally agree with your, your view of it, that there, there are these direct lines from Pizzagate to QAnon. I guess there was kind of the storm and pedo gate somewhere in there as well. And then QAnon, you know, obviously became this huge thing and kind of boiled over into other areas. The Facebook stuff, Save the Children, kind of was a a weird, like, tributary of Q energy. And then Stop the Steal, I think, really took it and made it even bigger and more urgent. Yeah. Where and, And it also kind of activated it because Q was, the narrative with Q was trust the plan. You know, Trump knows what he's doing. Uh, he's he's locked. He's keyed into whatever is going on. The military intelligence to put him in there or whatever. You know, your kind of personal view of it was. I think all the Q people basically had this idea that Trump was to be trusted and something was going on behind the scenes. So even if it looks like nothing is really happening <laughs> and you're not getting anything you want, you're not winning. Uh, Actually, it is. And then Trump lost the election. And so that, you know, very quickly it had to, something had to happen. And I wasn't really sure, was it going to cleave away from Trump? And was it going to become just totally its own thing where Trump is kind of discarded? I think that could still happen. It, uh, yes. it seems like there's some indications of that. But the one thing that does link all the Q people together, it seems like at least up until the election was Trump himself. Yeah. And so I definitely think there was some energy. And then it it seemed like there was a week after the election where maybe it wasn't even a week, but there were kind of throwing out these different narratives that were not um, that coherent. (laughs) You know, there was, uh, I think you had talked to, we had talked about this. Steve Pachenik was kind of throwing out this crazy idea that like ballots were watermarked and yeah. they were going to, they were actually tricking Biden into stealing the election. Then they were going to arrest Biden and, you know, and that was all Trump. before the dominion stuff too. I right. mean, that, that so, was predated yeah. it. And just really quickly, they wanted to mention that caused one of the biggest rifts we've seen at Infowars in years where David Knight ended up getting fired over the Steve Pachenik disagreements that he had with Jones. Yeah, and uh, Jones, just recently I saw a clip of him really berating some Q guy that yep. called into his show, um, which was <laughs> was pretty crazy. Uh, but yeah, so that was before Dominion. And even before Dominion, there was the hammer and scorecard thing, which was, I still don't know that I totally understand what they were trying to say there. But somehow hammer was a CIA program and scorecard was how they count the votes and Somehow you and that was also tied into Dominion, and somehow when you put them together, that allowed them to not actually affect the voting machines, but to affect the like counting mechanism uh, or how the votes are transmitted to the, I guess, a central database or something, and and that was where all the discrepancies were coming, mm-hmm. and that was kind of the narrative. I guess that was basically like Sidney Powell's narrative. Um. And at that so point, anyway, she was a Trump. She had become an official part of the Trump legal effort, right? Which and, was weird already because she was Flynn's lawyer, and and then he sort of just got pardoned. 
around that yeah, time. Yeah, she was she was Flynn's lawyer, and that whole thing is pretty weird too. Because I looked into that a little bit about like how did she get tied into Flynn, and so one thing to mention about Sidney Powell, if you want to kind of like you know I emoji take on this, let's do it. <laughs> Uh, she was actually a pro she was a prosecutor for many years, which is part of her whole narrative, but she was actually a prosecutor in the Eastern district of Virginia, which is the most like, uh, pro government, like, uh, CIA up part of the, um, federal court system. And it came around a lot recently because that's where, uh, Julian Assange was going to be tried if he was going to be extradited. Oh, wow. One of the arguments people would make is that the Eastern District of Virginia, you're consigning him to a guilty verdict because it's so pro-government and so tied into the deep state apparatus, the whole you know court system, the prosecutors, the judges, all that stuff. So I don't actually have any proof that she was tied into anything. I tried figuring out if I could see what cases she had ever worked on, but I didn't really get very far on that. So I don't have a whole lot there with that, but... Let's just briefly um, um, go into Flynn a little bit because, yeah, like the fact that that Trump entrusted her to be part of this stop the steal, you know, attempt to legally, I guess, uh, through courts overturn the votes or 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 change the election, um, and it seemed like she, you know, she didn't she she was already promoting QAnon accounts as soon as you know we already knew that she was part of Trump's legal team, Flynn had already taken the QAnon oath even before he got pardoned. And he started, you know, really leaning into Q. And I guess just from your perspective, how did you view that as it was unfolding? Did you think, like, similarly that I did, that, like, it seemed like almost like the Q, um, narr- the QAnon movement itself had, had grown beyond Q, the poster, and was sort of now merging with the stop the steal Trump energy like whatever it was like it was almost becoming one in the same in a weird way yeah that was that was really kind of the way i felt about it and i i do feel like flynn is a little bit of a common denominator among the whole trajectory from pizzagate to stop the steal 100 percent, yeah you know because he had kind of i don't know if he ever overtly came out in support of pizzagate as an idea but he definitely signaled it. His son was full on PCGate. Yes. Um, he took the Q oath. Sydney. Po- so what I was going to say is Sydney Powell got hooked up with him somehow. He fired his like big law. I mean, he had a, a, a reputable firm. I think it was Covington and Burling, one of the like big white shoe law firms representing him. And they were getting pretty close to just cutting him a pretty good deal. He wasn't going to do any jail time or anything. They were going to wrap it up pretty quickly. It, from my understanding. And then he fired them basically as the case was almost over, hired Sidney Powell, and she files. So she had made kind of her narrative, her, her, her new persona for the last 20 years was all about federal prosecutorial overreach. But it's not in the way that like you or I or any like, you know, person on the left would view it, which is like they you know, they over-prosecute black people and poor people and load up crimes on, you know, just defenseless uh, people that have no money to defend themselves. <laughs> her her vision of prosecutorial overreach literally revolved around the Enron case. <laughs> and oh, wow. she had represented, I don't think she represented Enron directly. It was somebody related to Enron and 
she felt that the the prosecutors were just uh, manufacturing a case and loading it up, and they really had done nothing wrong, yada, yada, yada. So she wrote some book about it, and that was her whole, like, thing was that prosecutors, you know, go too far. And so somehow that got, you know, she got hooked up with Flynn on that because Flynn, the whole, you know, narrative of his case was that he, um, you know, that they, he had done nothing wrong really. And they were just trying to do this politicized attack on him, which there's, you know, there is some legitimacy to that. What Flynn was accused of doing was not like, you know, probably the worst thing in the world that's ever happened as far as things that should get prosecuted in federal court. But regardless, so I looked up some of her pleadings and like the first pleading she did in the case, it's a joke of a pleading. I mean, I, I went to law school and I'm not saying I'm a great lawyer. I, I'm not even really a practicing attorney anymore, but anybody who'd gone to law school would read this and see that this is not something that you would, you know, a a really legitimate person trying to win a case would file in federal court. It was citing to like news articles. For some reason, she was really fixated on citing the judge's own decisions back to him because she thought that this judge was, was great about beating up on prosecutors until she turned around and made an enemy of him. And the judge even called her out for like plagiarizing two pages of the pleading and stuff. What? Yeah. Wait, let me just stop you there for a second because this is very fascinating to me. So you have law experience. You you were able to see this. Um, what in the hell does that indicate to you? Because on, on one hand, I'm thinking Trump does seem to be doubling down more and more into his own like emotional abyss. You know, people are like, oh, he's losing his mind. I mean, Trump has been on another planet in, a, in some kind of form this whole time. Even though he's obviously very skillful with his rhetoric, it's he's not... He's not right. Something is off about him, but he does seem to be getting worse. Now, that's one, maybe one way to look at this and why he would hire a lawyer to make a filing that's this sloppy. But on the other hand, do you think it's possible that someone is intentionally giving him bad advice? Like, well, I should say I was, I was talking about the, what she had filed in the Flynn case. Oh, uh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't even know if she ever ended up, I guess she did make some filings, um, related to the uh, Trump case. But but she got booted very quickly, like kind of on an official surface level. Like they said, she's not part of the legal team and she'll be right. independently. Yeah. Well, and also, yeah, nothing she had done really would, if you were really trying to build a case that the election was stolen, she's not who you would hire just on any basis. I mean, she was a criminal prosecutor in federal court. Yeah this is a civil election law related case. that's very time sensitive. And well, that, I guess that's the, what I mean. Like, why would they, what, is, is it possible someone is giving Trump bad advice or he's just surrounded himself by the only people like the craziest people? Like what is, what do you think might be going that's on? That's a there? good, that's a good question because the legal team pretty, they did have some legitimate attorneys working for them and filing sure. like actual filings for a little bit. And then those basically, one of the law firms basically said, we're not going to work with you anymore. You know, this mm -hmm. has gone too far. I can't remember which one. It was, I think, in the Arizona case. It was very early on in this, too. Yeah. This was before Sidney Powell got even 
in the I mix. think so, or, or kind of around the same time that yeah. they swapped them out. And then, yeah, it was Sidney Powell, Lynn Wood, who's known for uh, basically high-profile defamation cases, and uh, Rudy Giuliani, who hasn't practiced law in 30 years or something. Really? Okay. I didn't even <laughs> well, realize I mean, that. I mean, he's just been – well, he wouldn't have practiced law because he was mayor and then he was in private um, – whatever businesses he was involved with after, you know, but I, I don't think he had been in a courtroom really probably since he was a prosecutor back in the eighties. That's so weird. So even just that is a strange thing for Trump to rely on him so much for these in court battles. Yeah. But if you want to put on a show, I mean, these are pretty good people to get. I get, I yeah. I mean, they true. certainly gain a lot of attention True. Now, why he would want to do that, I don't know, unless what you're trying to do is to just build up this energy around, you know, whip people up as much as possible. Then Linwood, Sidney Powell, and Rudy Giuliani are pretty good, I guess. Except that he also did, they kind of backed away from Sidney Powell, not, you know, it didn't take too long for that to happen. Linwood got way too crazy and they had to back away from him so really only rudy giuliani was left standing there well let's uh, talk about lynn wood really quickly because you you put together an interesting thread on his background you know his actual client history is very strange because on one hand it's like are these people sort of performatively insane trying to get attention trying to get headlines or have they actually transitioned from being competent legal people like who, who understand the law to then somehow getting enmeshed in this MAGA movement and then displaying signs of mental illness. How, like Lynn Wood is actually on parlor or he was before, I guess his account got roof saying that Mike Pence needs to be executed right now. Like go in there, take him out, hang him. They were, he was saying he was needs to be put in front of a firing squad. What's the fucking deal with Lynn Wood? Like what is going on there? When he was also saying Epstein was still alive, yeah. in the same tweet that he was saying Mike Pence was going to be assassinated or uh, executed by firing squad. <laughs> it's like, this is an amazing mind at work. And the here. John Roberts child porn uh, accusations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was tied into it because he didn't, yeah, he got, got into this fuck? whole thing. So, I mean, I have to think it's performative. I, I just don't think somebody goes, because Lynn Wood is, I mean, he was a good um, litigator uh, you know, I mean, he was a widely respected litigator. He had worked, so he started in medical malpractice. I think he probably made pretty good money from that. And he was in the Atlanta area and he, I don't know exactly how he got tied into it, but what it really made his name was uh, Richard Jewell, who was mm -hmm. a security guard at the Atlanta Olympics. Uh, Clint Eastwood made this movie about it. There's what another, year was that? Like 90? Uh, 96, I want to say. Okay was the Olympic year so somewhere around the mid nineties and um, Lynn Wood represented him in, I think they filed a bunch of different suits against the media because the media had vilified this guy and said, this guy is definitely the, uh, the bomber. Cause there was this bombing uh, attempt or, I mean, I guess it actually happened at the Olympics and uh, this guy was falsely accused of it. And so Lynn Wood, uh, one, I believe, several defamation cases um, on on Richard Jewell's behalf, and he sued like pretty big, like CNN and NBC. I want to say, you know, pretty big, um, yeah, uh, places. And so, not long after that, 
uh, he started representing the JonBenet Ramsey family, like the parents of JonBenet Ramsey, and um, I think also the brother, who that's kind of a popular internet theory is that the brother, brother may have actually them, yeah. done it. Yeah. Um, and I don't know a ton about the JonBenet Ramsey case, but there is Stephen Singular wrote a book about it, um, who is a pretty interesting, he usually has kind of like, you know, somewhat heterodox views on high profile cases. And he, he tied the Ramsey case into some wider child pornography ring that was going on in Denver or Boulder, wherever they were. Um, and that there, there may have been some other um, players that it wasn't necessarily the family directly, but the family had kind of like allowed their child to be used by some people in this ring. Well, the case, ring. I mean, I don't know how deeply you've looked into the case, but I could completely yeah. understand why there are so many alternate theories. I mean, not to say yeah. alternate theories about it, because the police themselves don't even have, uh, they, yeah. there was never a cohesive real theory or suspect ever for the case. And they didn't really, yeah. And they like, didn't um, investigate the crime scene or they didn't even find the, or uh, search through the house or something. Until the police had already been called and said that she was missing. And, but the strangest thing to me that makes that whole case just such a bizarre, I mean, I can understand why it's been the subject of so many theories is because of that letter um, that was left. That when you read the letter, you're like, what in the hell is this? Like this had to have been written by, one of the parents, but then at the same time, it's like the parents, it's like, what was, what was their motive? You know, like the whole, the whole thing is just so fascinating. I mean, so, but, but continue on with Lynn Wood because. Well, it's a bizarre you know. case. And the the reason I went down the Stephen singular theory path was just like, this is the Q narrative, you know, on a micro, on a micro yeah. level. And if you believe any part of that, anything about um, child pageants and that there, there may be some, child pornography aspect or, or, or color to it. You know, this is a guy who is protecting the parents who, you know, maybe had some involvement in it. And the other thing I had mentioned is just that it's, this is maybe just a coincidence or maybe not, but um, Ghislaine Maxwell actually has a tie into the JonBenet Ramsey family too, because her attorney, uh, the law firm she had hired in her um, criminal case that's going on right now is the same criminal firm that represented the Ramsey parents. So wow. uh, Lynn Wood was more on the civil side, I guess. And then uh, that was the cr- same criminal law firm, which is based in Denver, not based anywhere near where Interesting. Ghislaine Maxwell is. So weird and odd, <laughs> an odd kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he had other weird, con- I mean, he had uh, Gary Condit who maybe murdered his intern, Chandra Levy. Um, yeah. He had represented and Herman Cain, who, you know, recently died of COVID. Uh, he had represented when he had those sexual harassment allegations that took out his um, uh, presidential campaign in uh, 2016, I guess it was. He eventually got sort of kicked to the curb, seemingly, at least by Jenna Ellis. Uh, other people from the Trump campaign started to say that he wasn't associated with them anymore. Now, I guess I just wanted you to clarify what was his like official role in this legal effort? Was he just there to hype people up on stage with Sidney Powell or did he actually play some legal role in this effort? Like how did he even get, you know, involved in it other than just appearing at that rally and 
going full QAnon Pizzagate from there. Yeah, that's the, um, I think there is a lack of clarity about that as to how he got tied in or what exact role he was playing. I don't think he ever was officially part of the case, but he was up on stage and he was certainly holding himself out as, um, as uh, you know, being having some representative role for Trump. Of course. And after a while, what he kept saying was that, you know, he was trying to get information to Trump, but they, there was this circle around Trump that was blocking him. And so he couldn't get the information that Trump would need to him uh, because Trump was being, you know, there was a wall around Trump that he couldn't break. So, so that's, I mean, it's just so interesting. I mean, it, it almost seems comical to suggest that this has been some kind of script that's been written for these people to play out, you know, some kind of weird infighting. But like, is it just that the QAnon narrative or whatever QAnon is and this energy that is created has just become uncontrollable, even within these high, you know, like sort of access points of the power structure? Like, it's just... I it's really hard to say. I mean, what I would say about, you know, Rudy Giuliani feels like a special case. He's just kind of hitched his wagon to Trump so closely that I think he's going to follow him through. And I don't know that Rudy seems quite as QE as like Linwood and Sidney Powell. No, he's the least. I mean, he out yeah, of all of them, sure. he definitely seems to know where the line is. Um, yeah. Even though he's been recently saying that the Capitol attack was uh antifa you know right and, and yeah, quoting well, the groiper yeah. people about it but um but yeah tell keep going i th feel like you have more to say about linwood well Lin, i mean some of the other just he did represent some other interesting people like nicholas sandman who was the kid with the maga hat who was photographed mm -hmm. or you know near the native american guy and that was a whole really kind of tedious media controversy yeah. Um, but he, he represented him in some defamation cases. And he won, did um, he win that big eventual, like big win for Nick Sandman, that settlement? Was he involved in that? I believe so. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, I think he, yeah, he got a big settlement with, uh, CNN, I think, and maybe the Washington post or something. And, um, he had also represented, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, the, yeah. um, you know, the alleged uh, shooter in, um, wherever it was, Wisconsin. Yeah. Ed Opperman, I think, pointed this out on Twitter, but he also, Linwood is being sued by his former law firm colleagues. And, uh, and uh, he posted the complaint that the, um, that the law firm colleagues had, had uh, filed. And apparently the argument Linwood was trying to make was that he was never actually in business with these guys. So even though there was a website showing Lynn Wood and all these other guys as partners in the firm, listing them as partners, you know, all the doc, you know, basically everything out there is saying these guys are all in business together. They're all in the same law firm. Lynn Wood's literal legal argument was uh, actually, <laughs> actually, no, they, they were, they just kind of used the same space and uh, I had no affiliation with them really. So they weren't entitled to the back pay that I think is what they were trying to claim. Yeah, it, it's like an absurd, <laughs> totally absurd argument. Yeah, so I guess it it just keeps. I don't know what to how to process what you're telling me because it just continues to bring up this thought that 
what is he just some kind of blunt instrument for this QAnon energy to explode? I mean, what could, could have possibly been the legal usefulness of using someone like him and Sidney yeah. Powell? Rudy makes a little more sense just from a you know acting like he's fighting the you know the yeah, stop the steal. Yeah, version. although when he actually got in front of a judge, he clearly had no idea what he was talking about. And that became obvious within like a minute. But I mean, I don't think that they were brought in to make any legitimate legal arguments. Sidney Powell was used as like a conduit for this totally absurd disinformation about Venezuela and the CIA having manufactured these this uh, software that was going into the Dominion voting machines. And that all came, she didn't actually say it. She had a complaint that where they had like redacted the name of the Venezuelan official who'd given her this, but it was clear from context. It was this guy, Lindsay Salazar, who used to be um, Hugo Chavez's like right-hand man. He was his bodyguard. And um, it, it kind of pinged that I had, oh, I looked into this a little bit uh, a while back and, there are pretty credible arguments that um, that Hugo Chavez may have actually been murdered um, with a kind of fast-acting cancer agent of some kind, and that um, Limsi Salazar was the guy who literally like brought uh, uh, brought Chavez his food, and so he would have kind of the best access to um, to being the one who did that. And he defected from Venezuela not long after. Chavez died. Um, Wild. And was uh, brought to the U.S. through like a DEA agent. And it's also the guy who, whenever you hear um, allegations that like Venezuela is the biggest narco trafficker in Latin America, it's always, if you follow the chain, it almost always goes back to Lindsay Salazar. He's the guy who just feeds this stuff to the media whenever it's needed or whenever it's useful. And he's now God. living in somewhere in the U.S. I don't know, but it's like the ultimate he, form of the weaponized immigrant concept that Yasha yeah. Levine talks about, where he's just like an yes. utter mark or and or asset that they just like launder his fucking whatever you know shit that they want from him. Yeah, it's yeah, he's totally yeah, totally like a asset or even direct agent of of uh, intelligence. I would say. Um. But it's interesting, you know, you're going back to your question about why were these people brought in and are they really just insane? I think it kind of ties into the whole view of the people who stormed the Capitol Hill, too, because when you were saying that, what I was thinking about is like, I'm sure you saw these photos of inside the Senate floor. Uh, there were these guys who've now been identified and they were wearing like tactical gear. They were holding zip ties, yeah, uh, you know, like handcuffs, flexible handcuffs. And they've now been identified. The one guy was a fairly high ranking Air Force lieutenant colonel or something. And he's not wearing a mask. And, you know, he, um, you know, he seems like somebody who's had a a pretty significant military training and he found his way, you know, down to the the Senate floor, which is, you know, where you'd probably be trying to go if you were trying to do something, you know, really violent toward uh Congress people. Um and I guess what it what it makes me wonder is is that guy, you know, was that guy doing that because he is 
because he's kind of gone a little bit nuts with the Q narrative, and he really thinks that he's just, he's kind of just freelancing, and he thinks, yeah, I'm I'm doing this. Or is he more like somebody like Sidney Powell or Lynn Wood, where it seems like maybe they are playing some kind of role here that it's not totally clear why they why or how they fit into this thing, but it's not exactly just a um, you know just just a case of somebody who's gone a little bit crazy with the Q stuff. That's a really, really interesting observation. And I think it brings up this idea of if you zoom out from all of the really extreme version of the Trump rhetoric, not even just talking about the QAnon rhetoric, let's say like the, even the most extreme versions of the stop the steal rhetoric, one of the overriding sort of themes in all of it is we're really going to take you down like we're coming for you and we are going to destroy you you are criminals and it's coming for you like something is coming for you and every all of you are going down like so you know i don't know if this is part of what happened in the capitol building and let's discuss this for a little bit let's just go back to the capitol building we didn't talk much about it lynn wood of course went off and spun out into his own alleyway because let's just say q has stopped posting since december 8th the poster themselves has stopped posting. Ron Watkins, who people think, you know, may be involved in NQ, started to become this big personality in the Stop the Steal movement. And General Flynn is retweeting him. Then Trump starts retweeting him. Sidney Powell puts, files an affidavit with his uh, statement in it about right. Dominion. So all that being said, Lynn Wood goes off into the, his own alleyway and starts actually threatening Mike Pence's life. And it seems like the QAnon movement as a whole merges with this intense stop the steal energy, and it's all hinging on Mike Pence that he needs to do the right thing and not uh, certify the electoral votes and reject them. You know, you said there's a guy in there in tactical gear. Is he for real? What if, like, part of this was some kind of warning? I mean, not to say that there's a real domestic terrorism problem and it's just going to get organically worse. But there's a component to this where I'm wondering if this was ma mainly just a warning shot because of tactical military people who have high rankings in the Air Force are going in there prepared to seemingly arrest government officials who actually breached in onto the Senate floor. What is What kind of message does that send to everybody in charge? I mean, it's just, I don't know. What is? What do you have to say about that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think what I'll say might make it even more complicated, which is Do it. the the one thing that I've really focused on or that's really caught my attention with the way this Capitol Hill thing went down is that I lived in DC for like five and a half years and I went to several protests, yeah. including the um, inaugurate, Trump's inauguration, uh, what they called J20 that day. And so I went down kind of thinking I was going to go answer coalition was doing a a, a demonstration like along the parade route. And so I kind of thought, oh, we might go to that or whatever. What it turned out was that they had it on like military lockdown where you could not even get anywhere near the mall. And I'm talking like within a half mile of the mall without going through a like military style checkpoint. So, you know, you would be blocks away and the lines to even get anywhere near to get inside of this huge bubble they had created around the ball, the parade route and where the inauguration rally was, 
was so massive and they were so slow about checking everybody's bag and uh, they may have had metal detectors. I can't remember um, that we just abandoned that idea completely because there was a lot of other stuff going on too. And they don't let you bring, they have explicit rules where they do not let you bring flagpoles. There's specific yeah. things that they say they have signs up, right? I mean, yeah, I think there was even a rule that uh, you couldn't bring a bag over a certain size, sure. you know, like, so all that, all that kind of stuff. So what we ended up doing is kind of going up to, I think it was Mount Vernon Square, somewhere kind of north of Chinatown. And um, there had been a kind of a march thing earlier in the day. And this is where, you know, what you, what was called Antifa, they kind of smashed some windows. They smashed up a Starbucks. And so the police response was kettling them. And so they had had to be literally hundreds of police officers multiple city blocks where they had blocked off like a three or four block wide area with these protesters all inside of that kettle. And so they were just holding them there for hours and hours. So we had joined up with this one little march and that, that kind of ended at that spot or one of the spots where they were kind of being held. And there was a police line there, uh, cops in full riot gear, you know, uh, Vermin Supreme <laughs> was there, the you know perennial presidential candidate who wears a boot on his head and has a big beard, and he was like yelling at the cops. And it was just people were just kind of milling around there, not really doing much of anything except a few people kind of like shouting at some cops. And so at some point they decide, well, we're going to take all these people in the kettle and we're going to arrest them. And so in order to do that, they needed to disperse the crowd that was outside of the bubble. And so they just started spraying uh, pepper spray into the crowd, no warning at all. They set off flashbangs all around. So it sounded like there were explosions going on. Uh, I mean, it was pretty, pretty crazy. Certainly the craziest like protest response I'd, I'd been a part of. And um, they ended up arresting the, all these people, like 170 people indiscriminately. They took all their phones, they held them in jail and what happened after that is that uh, it's all federal property in D.C., so it's a federal case. And the federal prosecutor in D.C. pressed charges against all 170 people that they had in that kettle. And that drug on for like uh, had to be at least over a year that the, the case dragged on. They actually took it to trial. They put like half of them on trial in the first group. They were going to try the second and the second group. And they were really, really big threatening charges. I mean, that they were meant yes. to scare. Like, like I, decades in jail yeah, worth yeah. of charges. Felony inciting a riot charges were placed on every single person. And it was insane. I mean, I, I remember that I, I, I really thought, I, I was shocked by it, that they would go this far. They ended up losing the case, thankfully. I mean, they didn't really have much of one. But what also came out in the trial was that uh, D the local D.C. police had infiltrated the protest planning movement and was actually sitting in on protest planning meetings. And Project Veritas uh, had actually infiltrated uh, the protest planning movement as well. And they had taken video oh, from shit. inside one of the protest planning meetings, which they used in evidence at trial. Holy shit. 
Yeah, and the the DC cop was the one who kind of was used to introduce the evidence, I guess, because he was at the same meeting. Which, and he was very loath to admit that it came from Project Veritas. Eventually, when pressed on the stand, he did admit that. But what it meant to me was that they were coordinating with Project Veritas because because you couldn't really introduce that evidence unless somebody there was verifying, oh yeah, I was at that meeting. I can identify, you know, where I was and everything. Um, otherwise you'd have to bring the person who brought it up, who made the video up to the stand. And that would be somebody from Project Veritas. So it was, I mean, it was a totally insane thing. And the point I'm trying to make with all of this is it's night and day compared to what I saw, you know, going on at the Capitol. Now, it's a little bit different because the Capitol is, is policed by U.S. Capitol Police, which is like, which is kind of crazy, too, because they have like a, a police force that's literally twice as big as the D.C. Police Department just policing the Capitol building. Yeah. And they have a budget, some insane budget. And, it, you know, it, it's pretty wild. And a lot of them really are more like glorified police or uh, glorified security guards. You know, of course. Just like, you know, checking people as they come in the door and whatever. But, you know, these are the that was the only line of defense they had against this, ma- you know, pretty massive, bulked up group of, of Trump supporters. So you mean the only came, line of defense that w- ended up being there? Yes, okay. exactly. Right, right. <laughs> Just wanted and to clarify what, that. What has come out is that, uh, well, it actually got even more. Com- so the first story I had seen is that the Capitol Police chief. Uh, the National Guard had reached out to him and said, hey, you know, we kind of hear some stuff that's going to go down. Do you want some help from the National Guard? And he said no. And the FBI apparently called while it was going on and said, hey, do you want some special agents to help? And he also uh, turned it down. And now he he actually came out today, the guy who's the chief of the Capitol Police, and um, uh, said – and I don't know if this is just damage control or if this really is what happened, but he said that it's actually up to the sergeant at arms. Uh, and there's a, I didn't even know this, but apparently there's a sergeant at arms for the house and a sergeant at arms for the Senate. I think this is a guy who like yells, Oye, Oye, you know, the president is coming when they do the state of the union. Okay. Um, regardless. Anyway, so apparently what he was saying is that that the sergeant at arms has to actually request national guard to come out and that he had made the request to the sergeant at arms several times and they never uh made the request or they refused to do it who's they <clears throat> made the request to the sergeant at arms uh the the police the chief of the capital police okay is saying that he made a request to the sergeant at arms and the sergeant at arms refused to do it because they didn't want it to look like the story is that they, they didn't want the bad optics of, you know, some military, like, you know, meeting Trump supporters or something. I mean, that it doesn't make a lot of sense to me what they're saying. And just to backtrack a little bit from there is that, you know, as I was saying, Lynn Wood was making essentially death threats to President Mike Pence or Vice President Mike Pence. Yeah. And a lot of the QAnon movement's energy and the stop the steal energy converge into this really explosive point where it was like, it's all coming down to Mike Pence, but they were already sort of preemptively the days leading up to this saying he was a traitor. We need to get rid of Mike Pence. I mean, it wasn't just Lynn Wood saying kill Mike Pence. I saw other crazy QAnon postings saying that as well. 
Mike Pence was hiding out. He was essentially a sitting duck. Now, whether he was somehow knew this was coming, I mean, because that's the thing we haven't really fully examined is how much of an inside job was this and how does that actually break down? Because yeah, there's just no other explanation uh, for what you're saying other than somebody yeah. gave the word or, you know, we already know that on the lower down there were some cops there who are queuing on supporters i mean we already yeah. we already saw Taking that selfies and th- they didn't get the request that they asked for and what and i guess elaborate on that yeah so i don't really know if it comes down to the chief of the capitol police that's what i would have said like yesterday but today it came out the chief of the capitol police gave an interview and he said it was actually up to the sergeant in arms and he did request either way what i'm saying is Everybody, it was very obvious from online postings, from the rhetoric that was around, that there was going to be a rush on the Capitol building. You know, this was a little more anecdotal, but uh, Sam Sachs of the District Sentinel had had tweeted that his wife does IT work at the Capitol, and they had been, that a bunch of uh, contractors had been told, don't come in by the D.C. Capitol Police because we were afraid something might go down. So work from home that day or, or take the day off or whatever it was, close the office for the contractors. It, apparently, a bunch of contractors were told, don't come in that day. And then here's where I was going. So Maxine Waters gave an interview where she said that she was aware of a lot of threats. She was aware that Proud Boys were coming. Uh, three percenters, Oath Keepers were all kind of mingled into this crowd. And she had had conversations beforehand with the Capitol Police saying, you know, are you prepared for this? And they assured her that they were, that they were working with the local police department, the DC MPD, um, and that they were in touch with the um, uh, the National Guard, I think, too, and that all of this was in order and they weren't going to, what she was told apparently, according to her, is these people weren't even going to get anywhere in the Capitol, like, arena anywhere even outside the Capitol in that big area that's in front of it. So that's what she, that's what she claims is they, that was their response to her. That's what she says that the DC cap or the Capitol police told her prior to the events of the day. And, you know, Trump told people to go over to the Capitol. So it wasn't like that was, you know, some unexpected thing. And he was going to be there with them. He he told them he was going to walk with (laughs) them. I guess in spirit or something. So you were watching this MAGA stream of a guy claiming that there was a lot more nuance happening at the actual brawl inside the Capitol building. Yeah. I mean, he he was just making the point that there was a lot of cops working with the protesters and that it wasn't really like protesters here, cops, protests one side, cops on the other side and the clash happening Um, from what he was seeing. Obviously, we did see footage of that as well. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, also throw out their worst stories and you, it's hard to know how to take these that like secure information was stolen. I think laptops were stolen. Um, that was know, a very they, bizarre part of this where they all photographed yeah. their um, speeches and stuff. Yeah. Like, like, I mean, I, I, cause the Congress had to, you know, evacuate out of there and all the protesters were actually seen photographing their notes and things on the tables. Right. And the emails on the computer and, that was that was odd. I mean, it didn't. Not to say that people these days can't just immediately be like, "Oh shit, I'm going to start taking pictures of this." I have my cell phone, but it seemed a little 
un- it just that struck me as odd that they knew where to go, especially some of the private offices like Pelosi's, and then and then we're doing those things. So I don't know. I mean, yeah. In one point, a few people have made, and I don't know. I I need to look into it more to see, but they kind of made the point that there's two general groups here. There's like just kind of like general MAGA guy who showed up to the protest and just kind of went inside with the crowd, got inside and like was just having a good time or didn't have any particular plan about what they were doing. And then the other group was people that were like decked out in full tactical gear yeah. and really seemed, you know, brought zip ties, seemed to have a mission. Now, whether they were doing that because they really were trying to, you know, execute Mike Pence or they were doing it for some kind of show or, you know, if it is this kind of contrived strategy of tension type thing, you know, that's, I think where I really have no idea where I would come down on right now. And another thing I'll point out that kind of favors possibly the true coup side is that the number two, three, and four in the line of succession to president were all in the building that day. Mike Pence, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Grassley were all there, meaning that the next person in line would be Mike Pompeo. So That's I, I don't know exactly insane. how that would work into a a coup attempt, but I guess if they tried to twenty if Congress as a whole tried to twenty fifth amendment Trump, if you took out these other people, you'd still Pompeo would be the guy left. I don't know exactly, but well, just uh, commenting on that really quickly, that's really fascinating to me. So if that's true, what you're saying is that the next three down in the chain of succession were there in that building, then if we look at this from the angle that this was designed to incite some kind of fearful reaction or fear, I, I don't know. I mean, it, that is really fascinating that it could have it could have been. I mean, just that possibility is sort of dangled in front of their faces like this could have actually taken out your entire sort of government and that's really uh, sort of scary to think that that i'm not saying it was used as a fear leveraging tool by whoever wanted this to go off but it is uh it is interesting to think of what that means moving forward if there is going to be some sort of chilling effect and how that's going to play out i mean the last time the capitol building was attacked was the anthrax attacks Really, I think. I mean, maybe there was another, some some kind of attacker before that. So I don't, I don't know. But and we know the what kind of chilling effect that that had, and how that played out in the war on terror. So how will this yeah. sort of thing play out? Because even if that wasn't a deliberate attempt to scare them and scare whoever's still there and tell them that look, we could have pulled off this sort of almost Bojinka style multiple assassinations. Um, the effect still remains. I mean, like that's in the air right now. They know that if they were all there. I mean, like the anthrax attacks, it's probably going to end up with more money being poured into the apparatuses they already have, more security, more, you know, uh, militarization of the capital. I mean, that would be my guess as a kind of most immediate response. And then... You know, I mean, we're immediately we pretty much saw the the online crackdown response where um, that's the craziest part of all you this. Know, I parlor, think. yeah, Parlor got dropped from Google Play, uh, Apple Store. I mean, Amazon Web Services taking it down off of their servers. That that's kind of a 
that feels like a new bridge to me. Like it a does. New step. Well, sure. I also heard, uh, I, I don't remember who I saw posted about it, but apparently eight coon is going down as well. Oh, so really? They're, well, it yeah. seems like they're finally, I mean, uh, after the El Paso shooting is when eight Chan originally went right. down because mm-hmm. their servers uh, stopped wanting to host them. So this, I think this is going to get much further, but I mean, say more about the sort of the digital response, the, the big tech crackdown. Yeah. I mean, the, well, obviously Trump got banned from Twitter as did Lynn Wood. Well, I think Lynn Wood had been banned before that, but, uh, yeah. Sidney Powell, Sydney General Powell. Flynn, uh, Ron Watkins got banned. Yeah. Um, all in the same day. Yeah. A bunch of Q accounts like Tracy beans. I know one of the bigger Q or Q ish. I don't know if she was overly Q or not, but which if they're trying to purge QAnon and they say they claim they've been doing that, I guess, for over a month. I mean, it's actually been longer than that, that the QAnon purge they announced on Twitter, I think like three months ago. So why would they have left those accounts up? That's that's right, sort of interesting. Of ones. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I guess maybe they felt like, you know, you can take out these small accounts, but then when it gets to the bigger, high profile people, it's a little bit harder. There's more heat on it. And this gave a good opportunity to do that I, I don't know what the rationale apparently with trump itself there were stories that it was really the employees of twitter who i guess are also trying to unionize and that they had kind of mobilized and and um advocated for trump being taken down which um, is it which is probably definitely true but yeah, then you have so. to wonder and this is complete speculation on my part but who has been consulting twitter about removing disinformation from the internet because we know the whole concept as an industry of removing disinformation is a racket that is mostly connected to like an Intel community in DC. So how does that play out at Twitter? I mean, I don't really know the granularity of it, um, but it's, you know, it's really worth looking into. Yeah, I think so. And it's great. You know, the thing I kept thinking about is there used to be literal ISIS recruiting accounts on Twitter. Sure. Um, you know, the, the, um, just how far we've come from that to now, tr- because the, you know, I get the, the willingness or the wanting to ban Trump, but the, the actual rationale they provided for it was extremely thin. Oh, it's bullshit. It was, it was like, uh, he was saying that Pence wasn't going to, or that he wasn't going to be at the inauguration, therefore, the inauguration would be a legitimate target or something. Yeah. They were kind of conspiracizing it. I thought weirdly in their tweet, it seemed like a rushed press release. I didn't get it. I didn't, I didn't get it. Yeah. It didn't make any sense really. I could have Um, written a better one if I was coming from that angle. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, maybe they should start hiring, (laughs) you know, quote unquote conspiracy people to build the conspiracy of why they need to ban the conspiracy accounts. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, you know, it, it's definitely made me think like, well, I should probably archive my tweets somewhere because it is where I post the research that I do and it would kind of suck to get my account taken down and lose all that stuff because I do search back to things I posted, you know. Well, just so people know out there, you can actually export your entire timeline as like a spreadsheet file. Yeah, um, and I should do that. That's if anyone you know wants to just keep their tweets, I would recommend that. Uh, and and you know maybe just close your account too. 
as well. <laughs> delete everyone, delete your account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I really don't know where it's going to go from here. I mean, I feel like they've opened the door so widely to, you know, all kinds of online censorship and banning. I mean, when you're banning the president from Twitter on what was a pretty thin pretext, at least what they stated was a pretty thin pretext. You know, it really opens the door to banning all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons that are probably not that good. And I mean, Trump got banned from everything. He got banned from Spotify, apparently. Wow, that's, yeah, and apparently they Stripe uh, banned any Trump campaign people. But here's what's really interesting about this, because, you know, yeah, on one hand, Twitter could say this is about the Capitol building, you know, or perceived potential threat terrorist threats or whatever on the inauguration day but i really i mean my thinking is that this really all has to do with QAnon, because when the president himself and all his lawyers and like representatives like flynn are just echoing all the same narratives that are could be potentially violent uh from their accounts um you know what is twitter you know what is twitter to do their only choice at that point is to ban their their actual accounts and when trump is retweeting ron watkins when from my perspective it almost did seem like the QAnon stuff did merge with this presidency during this sort of like hail mary insanity play and that's what i i wonder if that's twitter's thinking where it's like well if the president's basically QAnon now we have to ban the president i mean i'm not rash i'm not saying it was a good idea i think it's actually yeah a horrible idea it's going to have it's going to further inflame whatever these people are going through psychologically. They're already in pain. I mean, this is not a pretty time for them. They're not, right. you know, whatever they're telling themselves, it, it's, a lot of them have already jumped off ship and it's ruining families. I mean, it is, I know people who've gotten sucked into it. How much overlap between the QAnon, whatever that it was, and the Trump administration, do you think there actually was towards the end of this? And do you think QAnon was some kind of psyop? Do you think FBI Anon and Pizzagate were some kind of psyop? And I, by that, I don't mean like the CIA. I just mean mm-hmm. that some kind of intel network was involved, maybe even just private. I mean, look at Eric Prince. You know, like he's not yeah. just, he's not training mercenaries necessarily now as his main thing. It's like, what is he actually up to with Blackwater? Um, yeah. he, he's already said he was getting involved in information war. Right. Four years ago. And Trump uh, pardoned those four, you know, Blackwater mercenaries that, you know, to heinous war crimes. I mean, just. Yeah. Just totally insane to do that unless it's some kind of message or gift to Eric Prince. Um, I I don't know. I mean, he had also pardoned that uh, special forces guy who just like murdered a kid in Afghanistan, too. So, yeah. Um, you know, maybe it's just some sadistic thing inside of them or something, but, um, where, where my mind goes is, I mean, we've talked about Flynn a lot and Flynn does feel like kind of a key piece to me because like we said, he kind of flows through from Pizzagate all the way through to stop the steal. I mean, one of the ideas that I saw out there from Q people was that like, Somehow Trump was going to take out Pence, arrest him or something. And he was going to appoint Mike Flynn as his vice president. Um, and of course, that was what in 2016, a lot of people were speculating that Flynn was going to be the vice president. 
and Flynn played this, you know, there, there is a real religious element to Q for a lot of people. And Flynn played this kind of martyr role where he had been like sacrificed by the, the deep state had, you know, had killed him. And, and there was some idea that like something was going to happen. He was going to be redeemed and kind of brought back to, to life in some political way. Now, I think all of that is pretty, feels pretty manufactured to me, as does most of the Q narrative. Um, and I guess where it goes for me is that Flynn, as you know, you pointed out, I pointed out, uh, co-wrote a book with Michael Ledine um, and is very close with Michael Ledine and his wife, uh, Barbara Ledine. Uh, yeah. He worked with Barbara Ledine to try to get... Uh, Hillary's <laughs> Hillary's lost emails on the dark web with Eric Prince, I think, was also involved yeah. in that. Which is um, which just yeah. re- commenting really quickly is just really an interesting thing because you know you could you know in theory I guess solicit a hacker over the dark web, um, a good one perhaps depending on what their price you know how much you're willing to pay to yeah. try to get do some kind of hack from maybe even a foreign country. Well, what's bizarre is that they had re- the guy they had reached out to is um, I don't I think he deleted his account. But he used to be on Twitter as Pwn all the things. And um, what do you mean the guy they reached out to? So they they tried reaching out to, or they threw this other guy who ended up dying, um, whose name I can't like Peter Smith or something. They they did try reaching out for technical assistance or something. This is my recollection, so I, I could be off on this. Okay, uh, but I, I'm pretty sure they reached out to this guy, Pwn all the things, Matt Tate, who is like a liberal. Like I think he's written for Lawfare and, yeah, and stuff like that. He's not that. somebody who would be friendly to their political ends at all. So I, I don't know what that's about at all. That doesn't make any sense, really. Um, well, that, but where I was going with Michael Ledeen, I mean, Michael Ledeen is connected into practically every, like, deep state type operation for the past, like, 50 years. I mean, he was a literal Italian gladio hand. He was involved in, uh, you know, I mean, he was working, I believe, directly with Licio Gelli, who was the head of the Masonic P2 Lodge, and it played this key role in in gladio in italy and um well let's also just quickly mention who else if you know it, this is michael and ladine is not necessarily enmeshed in q and on but he has a, no, a sort no. of indirect connection but who else uh steve pachenik has been yeah, accused right, of being right. involved in aldo moro's um assassination kidnapping and assassination yeah because aldo moro i mean that i should dig into it deeper before i i really would say a whole lot about it because i don't i'm not that knowledgeable but it it was um, very overtly. It, it it kind of is interesting how it ties into what we're talking about now because he was kidnapped by the Red Brigades supposedly, and then they ended up executing him. And it was very obviously done by the Red Brigades. They posted like photos of him like tied up in front of a Red Brigades uh, flag, and of course that was the like far right. I mean, sorry, far left group, communist group in in Italy. Um, tying up and kidnapping a pretty progressive, I mean, pretty left on the left side of the spectrum, prime minister, Aldo Moro. 
And Pachenik was like a basically like a hostage negotiator that was brought in, if I understand correctly. Yeah, like a psychologist, like a government psychologist, hostage negotiator, some kind. Right, but the there are definitely allegations, and this is where I am a little bit tenuous, but that it wasn't really done by the Red Brigades, and it was kind of a manufactured kind of false flag sort of kidnapping. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean that's what the years of lead and Gladio is all about that, you know, a Bologna train bombing looks like it's done by leftists. It's actually done by right wing, uh, connected Italian intelligence groups and that kind sure. of thing. Um, and, and, the, and, <laughs> uh, Ladine certainly fit right in there. Pachenik fit right in there. And, um, you know, just the way that Ladine has been directly involved in a number of disinformation specifically disinformation operations uh in italy he was he was very heavily involved in uh there there was an assassination attempt on the pope's life it was very obviously done by the gray wolves a guy connected to the the turkish fascist group and he was involved in trying to blame it on the soviets there was a bulgarian connection uh edward s herman wrote a, a really great book that actually goes really deep into this and the CIA was involved in funneling information kind of back through this woman, Claire Sterling, who is a far right nut who would write all about how the Soviet Union was funding terrorism all around the world. Basically, the same narrative that Michael Ledeen now uses for Iran, that, you know, every attack that happened somehow is traced back to Iran, uh, was kind of what she was doing with, with that. And Ledeen was involved in the... the yellow cake forgery uh, thing that helped sell the Iraq war and, you know, just a number of specifically disinformation option uh, operations, which is why I guess my mind goes to him, even though, like you said, he's not really directly connected and may have nothing to do with it. But um, it's certainly an interesting background for somebody who's kind of a hero to the people uh, who, you know, think that Trump is fighting the deep state. I guess in just sort of this symbolic way, it's just sort of creepy that someone who, you know, I would argue is one of the more sociopathic acting, public acting neocons who was involved in PNAC. And as yeah. you said, he goes back decades and, you know, being involved in some of these disinformation operations and even potential assassinations. So it's just quite creepy to think that someone, you know, could potentially be involved in a, in a network of people that's able to turn that sort of the truther movement, you know, uh, against itself in this weird way where it just becomes a weapon for some kind of, I mean, and I don't know, I mean, like, you know, I my mind goes more and more to this idea that whatever QAnon is and however it evolved and metastasized, it just doesn't resemble, there's just never been a digital cult like this. And I know that the Trump movement itself is very, very you know, powerful. It has a special kind of energy, but there's something else to this that feels just enhanced, you know, where it is, it is unprecedented. Um, and, you know, I've been looking on and off at conspiracies in deep politics for a long time, and there's just been never anything like this. It's captivated the public mind. It's gone beyond the internet. I mean, there's boomers, you know, I mean, not saying like, you know, casual Republicans are all honors, but there's there's a lot of it's just reached a critical mass that i've never really uh expected so 
let's wind down the topic on the Capitol building. And if you have anything else to say about, you know, Ladine or, you know, Flynn or, um, or even Mike Pence in all this, like what, what his role might be in all this. Um, and just anything else about it. Cause I, I don't know if we really even got into too much into the idea that this could be some kind of inside job where they allowed it to happen, but who, who are we talking about when we say they, is it just, you know, yeah. there, there could be so many motives for people involved in this to want to see Trump go down in flames. Yeah. I think it, the effect of it is that it really solves a lot of people's problems because now every, you know, practically every Republican who's been looking for an off ramp from Trump has a very clear one. They can denounce this. They can say Trump's inciting violence. You know, I don't agree with that. You know, I mean, a cop died in the whole thing. So, and another one committed suicide a couple of days later. They're kind of halfway counting that one now. Um, you know, they have a very obvious way of distinguishing themselves from the Trump movement. And I, I, you know, I'm not saying that they necessarily were, there was any involvement from them. I don't know. I, I, what I look at is it seems very clear to me that there was somebody, whether it was the chief of the Capitol police or the Sergeant at arms who was specifically not making the preparations that I would absolutely a hundred percent fully expect that they would make for something like this. And I'm not trying to make a comparison like, Oh, if it was black lives matter, you know, they'd have snipers on every roof, but you go to DC, you see snipers all the time, you know, exactly. They make a show of force. I mean, they, they make it very clear that, you know, we're not to be fucked with here. And, and so how that happened or who is the one who's directing it to happen, I don't know. It is possible, like I said, the two, three, four being there is is suggestive to me that maybe Trump was trying to pull off some kind of weird coup or or auto golpe or something. Or where my mind also goes, and this kind of ties back into the Gladio thing that I was alluding to, is there was actually this this article I've been thinking about that was in foreign policy, even though the the thesis of it is kind of something you would expect to find more in like global research or something. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was like America is about to enter its years of lead, which is the Italian period from like the fifties up through the eighties where there was mass, there was violence all the time, political violence all the time, lots of false flagging of attacks, lots of involvement by the intelligence agencies uh, the CIA was certainly involved. You know, NATO was involved through uh, the literal Gladio program. And the article itself doesn't, it, it kind of alludes to all of that without exactly making the argument that like the CIA would be directing all of this. But the argument it's making is that we are about to enter a period where political violence and things like this are going to become very um, common. And it's just going to continue to play on the this polarization that has happened how the how this particular event ties into it i don't know i mean i guess it's hard to say that well somebody directed it to happen so that you know we'll have more division in the country or something i'm you know that feels a little thin on the other hand it it feels like an event that is going to have a lot of repercussions uh, you know, we talked about the internet censorship. There's certainly it, it's going to 
anytime, whenever the next big protest happens, everybody's going to compare it to how this went down and what are the differences and, and how much violence occurred and how, what was the police reaction and all of that. So it, it feels to me like there are a lot of varied interests in having this occur that don't necessarily revolve around Trump having directed it or trying to do a coup. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we'll see what comes out from it and whether we get indications of that or not. And this is not to obviously absolve Trump himself or what his little weird team of people, this, you know, that he's doubled down into this crazy hole or, you know, his, with his circle of advisors now. No. I mean, like there is definitely some component of this where, you know, and I ha- I don't know if this happened, but either if it was just Trump just taking terrible advice just to f- placate his own ego, or if it was something more than that, and if someone is purposely giving him bad advice, you know, and if this was, if he was sort of nudged a little bit to go down in flames. I mean, he really did, he didn't have to do that. Like, if he really was going to walk out of there, why did he ruin his own brand like this? Like he he's a, he's a businessman. Like this is like financially damaging for him. What is, what does he have to benefit when he leaves? So it just it did seem like a little bit of just craziness in terms of yeah. why he went this far. So yeah, and my my theory for a little bit was that you know Trump's going to leave. He's not really happy about losing, but he also probably didn't really like being president all that much. It didn't really seem that he did. He likes the <laughs> yeah. affection of large groups. And my kind of halfway theory was he was going to maybe take over Newsmax because um, he's friends with Chris Ruddy, who owns Newsmax, who's like an old um, right wing guy who wrote a book on Vince Foster's death and that kind of thing. And that he was going to kind of rebrand Newsmax as like Trump TV, something like that. And there had been a lot of talk that he might do something like that. Now it seems pretty impossible. If you rebrand as Trump TV, it's going to get banned from every platform there is, you know? Um, So I'm not sure there's really a a possibility of him doing that. He's going to live practically halfway in exile right now, at least for a little bit. Um, So it is hard to see, you know, what his vision was. I guess some people, you know, the kind of more... Um, liberal Russiagate type people would say, well, he's actually going to face a lot of prosecutions coming down the line. And so he's getting extremely desperate and backed into a corner to avoid whatever prosecutions are coming down. I mean, I guess that's a possibility too. But. Yeah. I mean, it could be, I mean, on the surface, that's, that's definitely possible, you know, cause part of me is thinking, you know, people like Bannon, who've, who seem like actual ideologues in a, in a way, even though Bannon is definitely duplicitous and he's like a pathological liar and he definitely has hidden agendas. He seems like a genuine ideologue compared to Trump who just seems like he's running on like pure id and he's just, just wrecking ball who just somehow gets people riled up and knows the right things to say to sort of zoom out from all this and that the, especially the internet crackdown that's following that seems like it's going to have major repercussions even on people on the left it seems like people like bannon and flynn and these people almost like won like their vision won they are vindicated 
and Trump is just this almost like he was a sacrificial lamb or or maybe in some weird way Trump wins from this too you know later on and and if you if like you say he gets Newsmax and he yeah. rebrands it as his own channel but you know this I mean I can't imagine this was something that Trump wanted to happen to him I mean I'm, I I feel like he's too filled with pride but someone like Bannon especially Bannon I could see them being like this is exactly the outcome like we couldn't have hoped for a better outcome yeah well that that's actually a great point because bannon really did seem to does seem to want this like heightening of the contradictions type thing 100 percent. where people understand i am on the right i am you know i mean he maybe would frame it even you know nationalist or whatever and you, i don't know if you remember this but around the time of the el paso shooting lee stranahan who uh, is now on sputnik and he used to work for Breitbart with Bannon. Yep. Um, was literally doing these videos where he was accusing Bannon. And Lee Stranahan's kind of weird where he, he like goes somewhere, but he never quite gets to a point. If you've ever listened to him, it's oh, like, I'm very familiar. He, yes. Yeah. So he kind of keeps teasing up to something that he never quite gets to. But he was he was basically saying that Bannon was somehow involved in stoking the El Paso shooting to happen. And that Bannon was doing like what we were talking about, a strategy of tension, was trying to stoke a strategy of tension within the United States and was kind of the hidden hand behind a lot of these um, confrontations between uh, white nationalists and, um, and uh, you know, counter protesters, Black Lives Matter and all that. So um, it, it just made me think of that. And I mean, like I said, Stranahan never really offered that much evidence for it, except that Bannon was down in El Paso like a week before the shooting. And he was there for that We Build the Wall thing, which I guess he's now being still prosecuted for. Yep. Um, and um, Bannon also was, at Breitbart, was involved in a lot of pretty dark stuff with um, kind of buying videos. Or uh, he had this whole like Mexican arm of Breitbart that was like uh they would like buy up videos of like cartel violence and stuff so it, it did seem like he was trying to kind of like stoke some violence across the border too or something or at least the fear of it obviously he was trying to stoke yeah so um I don't know yeah so that that is a great point I hadn't thought about but yeah Bannon is probably probably not happy to be banned but maybe he is happy to be banned I don't well, I think it may be a way he is. I mean, he was doing thousands and thousands. I mean, like his video channel, you know, some, I wonder if some of these people are just sort of in kamikaze mode where it's like they want to get banned or they want to trigger this banning mechanism because when they do, it vindicates their whole narrative that big tech yeah. is against conservative thought. The liberal elites are against them. Um, the ruling class are in collusion with the liberal elites and then even China. It just sort of connects everything together in this beautiful way yeah. that I think is really going to feed into their that belief system moving forward. And, and it's it's going to be almost more empowered than ever. It's almost like without Trump in the way now, all those feelings have been vindicated and they can just sort of not be saddled by Trump moving forward. I mean, and when I say they, I mean like the QAnon movement, whatever the MAGA movement turns into. Yeah. Yeah, the cleaving away from Trump will be really interesting to watch. If they if they do that full on and are able to really pull it off, it's going to be a pretty 
that'll show the strength of the movement outside of just rallying behind Trump, which I think that's where it hasn't quite been tested yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- and I think we're going to start to see it. I mean, it's, it is a little surreal that I don't even know what Trump is doing or saying right now. Well, I don't know. Any, any last thoughts on this? I mean, I mean, obviously I'm sure you don't agree that we should have a, a domestic terror, a crackdown of some kind. No. And I mean, it's really hard to orient yourself to this stuff when it's really not clear what's happening or for what reason. I mean, there is obviously a Q movement of very angry people. Most, you know, when I say that things maybe are being manipulated or directed in some way, I'm not saying that there aren't tons of people in that, you know, the vast majority of that crowd was just exactly who they were and exactly what they were, you know, they were there because they support Trump and are angry and, you know, all this other stuff. So that anger and resentment is out there and there's a lot of anger and resentment, you know, which, you know, I'm obviously more sympathetic to on the left that's out there as well. And it feels like there is, you know, that it is all moving toward uh, some kind of potential confrontation while at the same time there's a lot of eagerness within the the mainstream to, like you said, label things as terrorist, label things as extremist or dangerous, or, you know, certain views are just the view is inciting violence and a willingness to ban things off of platforms and you know, I, I don't foresee that as leading to into good directions for anybody, really. Yeah, or just all this fear-mongering that's going around right now about the idea of conspiracy, dangerous conspiracy theories Yeah, taking over the internet and, and potentially causing all this chaos. It just seems like a, the language is deliberately vague. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. not... It, and it, you know it's weird too because even on the floor of Congress that night after the the siege whatever the fuck you want to call it, mm-hmm. and to see the scene in there was just pretty surreal and and kind of just weirdly stomach wrenching and to not see, uh, it just seemed like they were too calm about it, what had just happened in a weird way. Yeah, um, that but, was an odd. Yeah, that was very odd. Yeah, it was, and they did not mention anything about QAnon. They didn't specifically mention any specifics about we knew this was going to happen. They just all sort of like vaguely talked about conspiracy theories causing what we had seen. And it almost just seemed like the elephant in the room. They're not mentioning these specifics. And I just don't understand it. Like, do they not have these people not paid attention to QAnon? Um, Because I understand it's maybe just like an obscure topic, but it seems like it's gotten pretty mainstream and, you know, I would expect more of these politicians to want to know about a giant cult that is building basically that could potentially like kill one of them. I mean, it just seems weird to be so willfully ignorant about that. Yeah. I, I don't know how much they know or, or are aware of it. Um, I'm sure it varies by, by person because a lot of the narrative was more about the mains, the way that Trump or Hawley or some of these other, or Ted Cruz, were, that they were stoking it, stoking the violence. And I think not really 
quite get it, and then leaving it pretty vague as to what's going on online and or or anywhere else with Q or any other thing, and just kind of labeling it a conspiracy theory, and then that's the dangerous thing. Um, yeah, that that certainly is something that's been happening throughout the Trump era. You know, the Atlantic had like a special issue all about conspiracy theories and. Um, there's just a, a ton of these things that have popped up. I feel like I've, there was somebody I saw who was a reporter and their like beat was conspiracies or something. And, um, there's a lot of people a, popping up like that now. Yeah, exactly. And it's not a good thing. Cause it, it's coming from this mindset of, you know, there's no, there's not much attempt made to distinguish between legitimate kind of deep politics subjects and, um, you know, things that are more cultish and basically directed toward some kind of violence, potentially. That concludes my discussion with Gumby for Christ. We pick up the discussion later on a future episode of Media Roots Radio, where we go into his family history, being subjected to U.S. military experiments, and... Also, the theory that COVID-19 was created in a lab and accidentally leaked. And we sort of dive into that from all different sides. But here I'm going to continue my discussion about what we've learned since the Capitol building, what to expect may be coming forward, and how I feel that we're not out of the woods yet. Now, some new information that has come to light about what happened at the Capitol. Um, there were accusations that some tours were given, and I guess it's sketchy enough, and the accusations were not, you know, hyperbolic, just thrown out there into the media landscape. They were actually made directly to the Capitol Police, and the Capitol Police apparently are investigating uh, the claim now that tours were given to rioters ahead of the breach. Now, that's a little bit spurious because the Capitol Police seem to have played a role in what happened, what we saw on January the 6th. Now, that also needs to be deeply looked at. Sam Husseini on Twitter was saying that the Capitol Police cannot be FOIA'd, Freedom of Information requested. So we're basically counting on loud or angry congresspeople or people who are working there to raise hell and to basically get some wheels moving and light fires under people's asses. Short of anything like that, nothing's going to happen. The social media network Gab, which has a Pepe the Frog style logo trying to appeal to Trump voters, Trump supporters, has been significantly ramping up QAnon signaling. It used the quotes from Dark to Light on a Twitter posting today, which is very much a QAnon reference. And I, as far as I know, Gab hasn't really dog-whistled to QAnon like that before. And around the same time, OAN Network started ramping up some Q signaling as well that was quite curious. They visually showed on an article headline, they used a photograph on an article that they wrote about the Vienna-Austria lockdown protests. Now, on the photograph that they use, and keep in mind this article was just about the lockdown protests, it was maybe only two paragraphs long. It didn't mention anything about QAnon. didn't mention anything about conspiracies. It was just about the lockdown protest. 
For some reason, OAN chose to use an AP stock photograph of a man waving a giant QAnon flag. Now, I looked at about 40 other photographs from the Vienna lockdown protests. There was only one photograph that AP distributed that I saw of a man waving a QAnon flag. So I thought that was just a little curious and strange, notable that OAN would be doing that. Now, there's another theory to consider here. People were saying, is Trump going to take over Newsmax? I even discussed that a little bit with Gumby for Christ in the interview that I'm about to go into with him. But I think there's another possibility of what's happening here. I think that the whole fake news narrative that Trump has been spinning this whole time is not meant for Trump to start his own media channel when he leaves. I don't see Trump as even wanting to do that. He's too lazy to want to actually start his own channel. I think he wants to basically push all of his entire base, his entire loyal support group, his base, into completely different lanes of media so that they all stop paying attention to Fox News and anything else except for they only pay attention to OAN, Newsmax, and now outlets like Epoch Times. And if that's the plan, if this was a deliberate strategy that was maybe even pushed by people like Bannon, then it seems to be working because Epoch Times shot to the number one news app on the App Store on Apple devices, including iPhones, iPads, all those devices. Now, how does that happen that Epoch Times shoots to the number one news app? Well, it's because Trump has been essentially shitting on every other form of right-wing media except the ones that are completely loyal to his narrative which is that the election was blatantly stolen from him and that pushes soft QAnon, which Epoch Times does. Now, I suspect that Epoch Times is going to go even more in the QAnon direction moving forward very soon here. Trump also eventually put out what appeared to be some kind of apology video where he, probably the closest thing to expressing any kind of regret that he might do about the situation. Now, I don't believe anything he says in the video for a second. I don't think Trump is sorry. I don't think Trump is even ashamed. I don't even think... I think this was completely intentional on his part. I think that he's this stupid and crazy right now. So, in his video, he actually says that the supporters who broke into the Capitol, who hurt police, who didn't listen to police, were not real supporters of his. They do not belong to his movement. They do not represent him. And he threw them all into the bus. And that was surprising to see him do that. But I still think on some level it's a head fake. I don't think this motherfucker can be even remotely trusted. You would have to be stupid to think that Trump wouldn't just do a video just to get out of trouble as much as he could. He lost the PGA Tour at his golf courses. That's that's a pretty big hit on his ego. And the reason why I think this could be a head fake is because Trump is still entertaining the craziest shit you can imagine in private. While he's pretending that there's going to be some kind of orderly transition and he's ready to walk out and that he thinks his supporters have broken into the Capitol, were not real supporters of his, and he's upset at them, it doesn't seem to be really the case because we saw photography of the MyPillow guy, Mike Lindell, walking into a private White House meeting with insane notes that were photographed by, a, I believe, a Washington Post photographer as he was walking into the White House. One of the phrases on the notes reads, Insurrection Act now, as a result of the assault on the dot dot dot, 
Martial law, if necessary, upon the first hint of any dot, dot, dot. Another note on Mike Lindell's pieces of paper reads, Move Cash Patel to CIA acting. Another reads, Foreign interference in the election trigger powers. Make clear this is China, Iran. And the newspaper this is from, I believe it's from Washington Post, says that Patel, who currently serves as the chief of staff to acting defense secretary Christopher Miller, has been a Trump ally. One note suggests a new, a new security director now, in all caps. So what the hell is actually going on here? We already heard reports that Trump was talking about martial law in the White House as some kind of way out of this situation. So what is, it, why, what is happening the QAnon movement still saying martial law is coming and that Trump still has this in the bag somehow. Everything from particle beam satellite conspiracies to red pill everybody that's basically stolen from the Wonder Woman 2 plot. I don't know where that one com comes from, if it's a troll or not. The Biden face-off plot that actually they're going to switch faces and that Biden will be Trump and that the Biden presidency will be Trump enacting his second term. Now that was seemed like a troll. Whoever wrote that up seemed like they actually stole my idea about how the QAnon movement's going to become pro-Biden. But the more classic QAnon narrative right now is, generally speaking, Trump is going to transfer power to a new administration, but that it's going to be a new administration potentially with Flynn in charge of the military, that Flynn will become president. Now we have this awful prospect of basically what is sort of martial law already happening in D.C., where there are 16,000 troops there and there are going to be 20. 20,000. Now, the question I keep asking myself right now is who gives orders to the military? Who's in charge? We know the president has lost his fucking mind and is using the QAnon movement as his final play. Whether that means he's going to try to do more crazy things between now and inauguration or even after, I guess time will tell. But just in general, it seems concerning to me that more people are not asking why we can trust the National Guard. Now, obviously, the concept of this many troops anywhere for any reason is disgusting to me. It doesn't matter. The political context doesn't matter to me. But if they're there to protect the inauguration, why does anybody trust that they're going to actually do it? We already know that there was some kind of stand down or delay where the National Guard didn't come out on January 6th for an inordinate amount of time. There was a shocking delay. But the answer to the question, who is in charge of the National Guard? The guy who's actually the general in charge of the National Guard is Major General William Walker. Now, I looked him up. I couldn't find anything too sketchy about him in terms of his loyalties to Trump or even hints that he might be QAnon sympathetic or anything like that. What's more problematic, though, is that Ryan McCarthy is in charge, ultimately, of these troops and, and these orders above Major General Walker as the Secretary of the Army. Now, Ryan McCarthy does seem like some kind of Trump loyalist. He was handpicked by Trump. Trump seemed to really like something about this guy. Now, apparently there's other reports that Ryan McCarthy was the guy who delayed the deployment of the National Guard on January 6th, that ultimately it was up to him and he didn't authorize it. That seems sketchy to me. There's also information that he lied about the threat level on January 6th. Mayor Bowser apparently requested National Guard, and in his office's response to her, he lies about the amount of people that are going to be at the rally. He cites something like 
5000 but a permit had already been filed for around 30000 So why would the head of the National Guard respond to the city's mayor by saying something completely untrue and downplaying what was already had been filed with the city, a permit? The National Guard spokesperson says, as you may be aware, the forefathers of today's National Guard were present for the inauguration of George Washington and have been part of every inauguration since. Well, actually, I mean, come on, man. These are 20,000. Apparently, actually, I just read 22,000 National Guard troops are going to be present for inauguration. Sounds like a pretty disturbing and chilling scene for a presidential inauguration and one that's probably not going to be looked down on in history as something that we're proud of. So, yeah, I guess try to spin it any way you can in your press conference. This is from militarytypes.com. It says the length of the missions may vary, but Defense Department officials were authorized to deploy the Guard for up to 30 days for the inauguration and surrounding protests. Pentagon officials approved to have some Guard members armed with either long guns or handguns, particularly those Guard members assigned near the U.S. Capitol. Now, normally, what's interesting here. This is something I think people really need to listen to. And I and please do not mistake what I'm saying for any kind of promotion of the QAnon fear-mongering or narrative that Trump's about to do martial law. But the reality is this, and this is what it says from Military Times. Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy functions as de facto commander of the D.C. National Guard on behalf of the president because the district is not a state. D.C. does not have statehood. We've talked about this before on Media Roots Radio. Abby used to live in D.C. Eugene Prierre, a guest we've had on D.C., has been really behind that effort to get D.C. statehood. But other states actually do have some control over the National Guard. So technically speaking, if the National Guard was authorized in California, Gavin Newsom would be able to shut them down or would have technically some power over them. In this case, they don't. They don't have anything. It's directly on behalf of the president. So just let that sink in. People were talking about the 25th Amendment only one week ago. And now we're here with 22,000 troops that are going to be in D.C. on inauguration. They're acting on behalf of the president. That's That makes me extremely uncomfortable. And I'm surprised it doesn't make other people more uncomfortable. I don't know why everybody's like, no, the military can be trusted. They would never taking a legal order they would i mean look we saw what happened with the capitol police we saw what happened with the delay in the national guard so i guess the ultimate question is is trump crazy enough to try to rile up this q and on base even more and even try to activate some kind of q and on faction of the military i think that's a a legitimate question to be asking why is the q and on movement something that could be some kind of sophisticated psyop grooming all of its followers to be okay with emergency military command or martial law to fight the deep state. That's a strange thing. Why are they trying to make people believe that's okay? I don't know. I don't have answers. It just concerns me. And what this amounts to basically is Washington, D.C. being on massive lockdown. There's not a curfew in place right now. There probably will be. But dozens and dozens of blocks around Washington, D.C. are completely locked down. 
You can't drive cars on it. Some of them you can't even walk down right now. It's a complete police state, military police state in D.C. And from the Military Times article, it says that the FBI has warned of armed rallies in Washington and at all 50 state capitals in the day leading up to Biden's January inauguration. Now, I don't know how legitimate this is. I don't understand why more people aren't blaming the FBI for not putting out more warnings about January 6th and taking so long to even respond to the event itself. That should be pretty disturbing to people in general. It should be pretty fucking disturbing to people. And this is anecdotal, but someone I know who would know told me that federal employees all over the country are being told essentially to stay home from work on Inauguration Day, and even in some instances remove their federal insignia like badges while they're out walking around in public. This is coming from the state itself. So this is, in this case, I'm talking about California. So it's not being issued by the federal government, but it's still creepy. I mean, why is so much fear-mongering about this coming down the pike? Is it because of QAnon and they're just not saying it? Are they worried about something more than just protesters or quote-unquote domestic terrorist acts at state capitals, federal buildings, and courthouses? Is there information they aren't telling the public? I mean, I think, yeah, they're worried about something more than that, and there is information they're not telling the public. I think it would be awfully naive to think that the FBI and different federal law enforcement agencies aren't actively looking into QAnon. But then you have to wonder, why didn't they warn us? And also... You know, that press release by Twitter, and I discussed this a little bit with Gumby, where Jack Dorsey says that, or not Jack Dorsey, but Twitter official says that they banned Trump because he was talking badly about Mike Pence and and saying that he's not going to attend the inauguration, and that implies that it's safe to potentially attack it. And I... I'm glad I didn't buy that reasoning on its face because it turns out that a leaked recording of Jack Dorsey, video and audio of Jack Dorsey explaining the Trump Twitter ban, he essentially explains exactly what I've been talking about the last couple episodes of Media Roots Radio, is that the QAnon movement itself has essentially merged with Trump's rhetoric. That that once Trump and Flynn and Sidney Powell all start doing QAnon, and this whole time you've been trying to ban and purge QAnon off Twitter or social media networks, then suddenly you pretty much just have to ban Trump. If your goal is to purge your media network of QAnon, then you have to get rid of Trump too because he has become a QAnon espouser. In fact, he is actually pretty much using that as his play right now. So Jack Dorsey admits in this recording that that is why In so many words, Trump had to go as well. Now, it's interesting because they don't say that directly in their press release. They don't say it's because Trump is espousing QAnon or that we're worried Trump is going to do some crazy QAnon signaling, but that is exactly what they are actually worried about. And I'm not trying to give Twitter the benefit of the doubt here. I think it's a terrible decision they're making. But this is what this is all about, people. This is all about Q. Trump wouldn't have this ability to just trigger people into doing violence if it wasn't for what Q is. So I guess let's just hope that this motherfucker isn't crazy enough to decide to do something like that. Because whatever happened to that presidential alert system? 
that goes straight to your cell phone. Anyways, thanks for listening to Media Roots Radio, everybody. Really appreciate all your support. If you'd like to become a subscriber of ours, it gives you access to one bonus episode per month. Right now, we're about 25 hours in to a six-part miniseries on the Freemasonic history of the United States. So that's only available to our Patreon subscribers at the $5 and above tier. And you get instant access to that as soon as you subscribe by going to patreon.com slash Thanks, everybody. Take care.